is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is not just a triple threat, more a quadruple one. Hayden T has a career as an actor, singer, makeup artist, and also as a director. He knows a thing or two about musical theatre, having played Javert in Les Miserables in multiple countries, including on the West End and Broadway, as well as in this neck of the woods. He's appeared in Matilda, South Pacific, My Fair Lady, and Into the Woods, to name just a few. His cabaret shows have been a hit in New York and in Sydney, and he's released three albums. Based in New York, he's in Sydney now to direct the musical Jekyll and Hyde on at the Hayes Theatre from the 29th of July. So I'm delighted he's taken time out to be in conversation with me today. Hayden T, a very warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. I absolutely adore this musical and you're looking at it from a bit of a different angle, aren't you? Yeah, it was really, um, I'm so thrilled that uh, the Bracusa State and Wildhorn have granted us permission to kind of reimagine this show. And um, as it's actually never, ever come to Australia in a full-scale production, mm. um, I feel very honoured to be trusted with it. I was lucky enough to be involved in cast in the, uh, the Asian tour, so I know the original version when it's set and and all of that but I wanted to basically through the pandemic I wanted to think about the last time that we as a human race went through a collective thing such as a pandemic and it was World War Two. so I've decided to set the show just after World War Two in 1947 but um, as it's in the UK it's post World War Two, but just pre the NHS and entirely inside an asylum which of course is a place in the original show it's where the show starts but um we're confining it all between these walls. Is that the appeal of doing this project for you, that you are able to fiddle with it a bit? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I love reinvention. I think that's, um, you know, the ability to be able to make a real statement. And I don't think I'd be anywhere near as excited restaging something that already existed without um, being able to um, interpret it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think, um, I can see some of the same mistakes that we as a society made coming out of World War II, the bliss blitz, keep calm and carry on, kind of just not acknowledging the trauma that comes along from such a global event. And, um, I think this show is kind of the perfect show to make that statement. Mm. So yeah. tell us a bit about the show for, for those that aren't familiar with it. I mean, obviously it's based on the, the famous story, Jekyll and Hyde. Does it, does it follow that faithfully? Uh, it does, but it's certainly um, a story in its own right. Uh, we, for a start, we have a lot more female characters than the book. The book has none. <laughs> Other than a little girl that's um, killed by Hyde in the beginning, it's very male-centric. Mm. We have um, three or well, four, actually, very strong female characters in the musical. Obviously, it's based around the same thing of Dr. Jekyll. Um, his father has a mental illness. He wants to try and cure it. That's the reason for him deciding to go on this journey. And he creates a formula that separates a good person from a bad person. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of the, I don't know, I don't think that's probably a very good idea, but you'll have to see the musical to figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Now, this musical, if it's okay for me to say, did have a bit of a troubled beginning, didn't it? Uh, it's never really had that, you know, long, successful 10-year run on Broadway or the West End. <laughs> or no, and I think it's actually quite unfair. So so can you explain the history of this product? Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it is quite a um, a traumatic, I guess, history. <laughs> it's, it started off as a tour in the US. It's been through many incarnations. There have been lots of tweaks as they made their way to Broadway. In some ways, I kind of prefer the original. It started as a concept album, of course with um, Australian Anthony Warlow singing the lead role and um, Frank Wildhorn's wife at the time, Linda Edder, in the female role of Lucy. That's kind of, I think, the most probably the most well-known recording Mm. to Australian audiences, certainly. It was tweaked and tweaked a lot out of town and then it finally got to Broadway and some people said it it was worse off than before it started. I'm not going to make any judgments. Um, Is that that where we had David Hasselhoff playing? David Hasselhoff did come in. It's had had another Broadway revival with Constantine Morellis recently um, and Deborah Cox. And, of course, it just had a workshop in London with Frank uh, working on it for the West End. It's never, ever gone to the West End. Um, But I kind of feel like in some ways, much like, say, Chicago, for instance. Chicago, its original run didn't run as long as the revival, and Mm. it was ahead of its time. The themes were incredibly um, edgy when it was first written, but people have loved the revival, and it's still running now. And I think Jekyll and Hyde has the potential to have that same 
impact now. Mm. I mean, if you look at just the zeitgeist, we've got, um, obviously, there is the workshop of the West End in the West End where they're reworking the show completely again. There is STC, of course, are doing a play, a two-man play version. We've got the film version with Eddie Izzard playing Dr. I think Henrietta Jekyll. So there's something about the Jekyll and Hyde story and subject matter that is really in everyone's minds post-pandemic. So I feel kind of comforted in a way. Mm. I'm not the only person who's arrived at this feeling that that the show has something that can help us all. Mm. Well, I think we have to hear a little bit of the show now. Which uh, track would you like us to hear? I'd love everyone to listen to I Need to Know. The reason why I love it so much is, for me, it's the ultimate I want song. An I want song in a musical sets up the super objective for the protagonist, for the lead character. And this is, well, it's not even an I want song. It's literally an I need song. Um, It comes... Very early on in the piece, it's the third number after the prologue and Lost in the Darkness. And Jekyll's father is beyond help. And it really just sets up why he goes on this entire journey. And I think a lot of people can relate that we would do anything for someone we love, such as a parent. I need to know the nature of the demons that possess man's soul. I need to know why man's content to let them make him less than whole. Why does he revel in murder and madness? What is it makes him be less than he should? Why is he doomed not to reach his potential? His soul is black when he turns his back upon good. Get inside the tortured mind of man I need to try to separate the good and evil If I can One thing is certain, the evil is stronger Good fights are hopeless and desperate fight I must find ways of adjusting the balance To bring him back from the empty black edge of night I need to go that make men past the point of no return. Why does a wise man take leave of his senses? Where is that fine line where sanity melts? When does intelligence give way to madness? A moment comes when a man becomes something else. I need to know why man plays his strange double game. His hand always close to the flame. from the original concept album of Jekyll and Hyde, I Need to Know, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, Hayton T. He's directing Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes Theatre. Get along to hayestheatre.com.au for your tickets. Hayden, are you going back to the original concept album version? Effectively? Well, the thing is, I mean, the show, as I say, has been through quite a, an evolution over time. So this song, I Need to Know, was actually cut before it got to Broadway and mm. replaced with Lost in the Darkness. But the version that we have licensed now is is the standard version that's out that actually includes both songs. Ooh. So it's the new version that, that you license kind of has what I think all of the best songs from all of the versions, which is pretty cool. So it should. Now, you're a performer. You've been a performer, you know, most of your adult life, certainly. Moving to directing, how difficult is it to then cast other people in these roles? Does it actually make it easier or does it make it harder? I think it makes it easier in lots of ways. I never thought of myself... I mean, yes, I have 
done Jekyll and Hyde the show before, so I know it well and as a performer, but I and I never thought about myself being in this version. I think during the audition process, it allowed me to have a certain amount of empathy for people walking into a room. I've had a lot of lovely feedback from people who auditioned saying it was the most warm and welcoming room because if an actor's going to play and you're going to get the best out of them, mm. then they have to feel comfortable. And I've spent lots of time in rehearsal rooms that are comfortable and I've felt brave to make bold choices and times in rooms where I've been crippled with performance anxiety and, and not able to really bring anything, let alone my best. So I don't know, I've experienced a fair amount of theatre and a fair amount mm. of places around the world and I've never felt more ready for anything as I am for this in my life. It's interesting. There's no anxiety around this. I, um, I've thought through it all and... Yeah, I, I think I have a unique point of view as a director. Mm. Well, we'll come to some of your casting choices throughout the rest of the programme because uh, a lot of the other pieces uh, you've chosen are uh, performed by some of these people, so it'll be great to hear them uh, in action. I'd like to go back to you know your earlier life, if mm -hmm. I may. So where did this musical theatre bug come from? Um, I grew up in a tiny little town in New Zealand called um, Mangatoroto and uh, a population of, well, there's about 500 when I was growing up. I mean, I say I've come from there. I've actually just bought two acres 30 minutes from there and built a tiny house through the pandemic. So I'm kind of back there in some ways. Um, but, you know, I, I was a, a young person who f was obviously very different to everyone else, had not just had different passions, but just inherently unique and also othered in many ways just because I didn't fit in. That's, I think, spurred a lot of my work over the years, to be honest. Mm. So when did you start to perform? When did you start? When did the voice start to come out? Uh, at the age of 11, I had some surgery. So both my hips have metal pins in them. And it meant that I couldn't play hockey uh, anymore, which was my sport. I couldn't swim anymore, which was my other extracurricular activity. And I had to find something else. And um, my grandmother at the time took me to see uh, the amateur theatre company in town. And I saw, and I was like, oh, my Lord, I didn't even know that this existed I have to do this and I I kind of caught the bug the first professional show I saw was Jesus Christ Superstar at the then Aotearoa Centre but now it's called the Kiritikanawa Theatre in Auckland um, with Daryl Lovegrove and Jay Lagaya some amazing performers that are now perform I mean one of them Jay Lagaya is in once at the moment at the yeah. Donahue's Theatre um, it was quite amazing to see him the other night smash it on stage having seen him play Judas in the first professional show I ever saw he would have been a great Judas really really wonderful um, and that's when I caught the bug I played that CD until it didn't work anymore. <laughs> Glad it was a CD. From, in yes, my, I know. In, from my, in my era, it was a cassette that stretched. <laughs> that would stretch. So we're showing the gap in our ages there. That was um, the Kylie and Jason tape. That was the, that was the era in my life just before musical theatre. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but you, I mean, you talked about sort of feeling sort of othered, but you, you before your, your operation, you you were playing sport. You were in the hockey team. You were. I didn't say well. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, I was a good swimmer, but that's a very solo sport. Yeah, but you nevertheless, you still involved yes definitely yeah, yeah yeah so what was the first uh, show you actually were in uh the first show i was in was aladdin and then a, a show that a local lady wrote maureen davis she wrote crumbling towers which was kind of like a faulty towers but new zealand version and i just kind of immersed myself in the amateur theater scene yeah. from that moment on i did i started to do like three a year one year i did you know wizard of oz jesus christ superstar and kiss me kate it was just it was just kind of everything and what about singing training? Did you have a natural voice or did it have to be brought out of you? It definitely had to be brought out of me. So I, <laughs> I went to, um, my first ever singing teacher was um, a woman named Alison Sargent. I probably shouldn't name names. And I went to a couple of lessons and, you know, just kind of tell me if I could do it. And she said, if you work really, really, really hard, I could get you into the chorus of an amateur musical show and I was just as much like as that. and I was like I, I was actually I'm not offended but I guess I was always ambitious because I was just like well stuff you I'm going to go to another teacher and I went to another teacher who I knew Joan Kenaway who became my teacher for most of my childhood mm. and all my teenage years and I literally said to her my one goal is to go in next year to the Northland singing competitions and beat all of Alison Sargent's students that's all I wanted to do and so I trained really hard you're for not a, a vengeful person not at all <laughs> apparently you can tell why I've been playing the villain 
performance all my life now. And I, I trained really hard and went back to those singing competitions and got five firsts, a second and a third, beat all of her students and ne- never went to another competition again. I just wanted to prove to her. Well, you did it all in the first one, so why did you need to go back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Leave on well, a high. Well, a bit more music now, I think. And uh, well, this one sounds like it might be reminiscent of childhood, although it, of course, is uh, from a newer musical. What have you got for us? Yes, well, I love this song. It's kind of, it is from a new musical. It's from The Prom, which of course has been made into a film on Netflix. It's not the film version. I definitely chose the original Broadway version because Brooks um, Ashmankus plays um, Barry a lot better, in my opinion, to James Corden. Uh, the song is Barry's Going to Prom. It somehow does. It's strange, but I feel like I'm in a time machine. Cause guess what? It's like I'm suddenly 17. So book a white limo, uncork the dom. After 29 years, I am finally going to prom. I once thought a night like this wasn't in the cards. Now I've got a date, a tux, and the whole nine yards. A rational person would just stay calm. Oh, since when am I rational? Barry is going to prom. I wish I could tell that sad kid I was to stop crying into his Cheetos. They say it gets better. Guess what it does? Who cares if you're a big old girl? Just get into that gym and Barry's going to the To the freaking prom Barry's going to prom from the original Broadway cast recording of The Prom. Brooks Ashmanskis was the uh, singer we heard there and uh, giving James Corden a run for his money, I dare say. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Hayden T, directing uh, Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes Theatre. Hayden, things ramp up a notch. You want to take things professional, so you come to NIDA in Australia. Yeah. You didn't want to, there wasn't anything comparable in New Zealand? Look, it all kind of happened as a bit of an accident. I guess looking back, it was meant to be. I... I'd, all I wanted to do was just, you know, get lead roles in amateur theatre in New Zealand. And I came to Sydney after I graduated from high school for a week to do a one-week intensive musical theatre course called The Triple Threat at NIDA, which was um, run by Abigail Herman. And I literally just wanted to come for the week and the holidays and then go back and I was going to play the lead in Crazy For You. And that was going to be, you know, my future. And at the end of the week, Abigail pulled three of us aside and said, we're auditioning for the first ever musical theatre course here at NIDA in a few weeks, would you please, I think you three should audition. And I was like, oh, okay. Hadn't even thought about it until then. Came back a few weeks later, auditioned, and then on my way to the airport, waiting to go back to New Zealand, I got the call from Abigail. She's like, have you left yet? Did I get you in time? I was like, yes, I'm on my way to the airport. Um, You got in, you got in. And then five weeks later, I moved to Sydney. So it all happened so quickly at the age of 18 that I didn't have time to think about it. And if I had had time to think about it, I probably would have freaked out and pulled out. But... I mean, I'm really glad I didn't. (laughs) It was the most amazing year. Is that the way things often work out for you? Do you have to take the decision, grasp the nettle straight away? Otherwise, if you think about it, you get cold feet? Yeah, I am quite an anxious person. I actually had hypnotherapy yesterday for performance anxiety. Um, I am quite highly strung, but I'm also fairly ambitious. And I hope that's not... Some people think of that as a bad word. But um, I don't know. I, I like to throw things at the walls and see whatever Mm. sticks and then go in that direction. For the last maybe pre-pandemic, 10 years of my life, I lived contract by contract all over the world. You know, I do a contract in London, a contract in New York, contract in Australia. So I kind of do follow the universe a little bit. Even Mm. this Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes, which I'm so excited to be directing. I'm so excited that my directing debut is at the Hayes. I pitched the concept for the show to three theatre companies in New Zealand that all said no. And my best friend, Katie, forwarded me a Instagram link from the Hayes that just said, out of submissions closed tomorrow, send us your idea. And she said, just copy and paste it. And just send in. You've already pitched it. You've got nothing to lose. And I literally copied and pasted an email. Didn't even proofread it. Just sent it off and got a yes. And 
now this is exactly where it needed to be. I mean, they're so much more supportive than those theatre companies would have been in New Zealand. It's a much greater, more prestigious audience. It's Everything has worked out the way it was meant to. You touched on this in the last segment. You play a lot of villains. I know, I know, and I'm quite a nice person, I promise. <laughs> well, let me be the judge of that. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's interesting that before you played Javert, which, he, as I said, you played all around the world, you started actually with Marius. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the sweet, sweet college boy who's, uh, you know, the, the romantic lead, as it were. So tell me about the contrast of playing two diff- very different roles in the same show. Yeah. I mean, years a, apart, obviously. but Yeah, many years apart. Um, uh, yeah, I, well, if you ask Cameron McIntosh, I think his quote was, oh, you were such an uninspiring Marius and a much better Javier. So oh, God, he said that to Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, things get, yeah, yeah. I, there's no, no holes apart when, when it comes to certain people and, and that's a good thing you know where you stand True. you know at the same time he turn around and say you're the best you in the world at the time so that's uh, it's worth it. it's worth knowing that I wasn't a very good Marius but I um Marius was one of the first lead roles I ever played I was actually doing a cabaret show in Parramatta Riverside there were five people in the audience and my manager said to me oh we're going to add this is the moment funny enough a song from Jekyll and Hyde we're going to add this is the moment into the show tonight and I was like I don't even know if I want to go out there there's more people me and the band on stage and they're in the audience Anyway, so I knew this is the moment, so we put it in, uh, even though it was a semi-autobiographical show and I didn't have a moment, air quotes, in my, um, in my life to tie the song to. But then I realised later why, because John Robertson was in the audience and he is executive producer and, I guess at the time, international casting director for Cameron McIntosh. And after the show, he came up to me. Um, he was one of the five people. <laughs> after the show, he came up to me in the foyer and said, mm, how would you feel about auditioning for Marius in five weeks for the West End production? We're having trouble finding someone. I was like, um, yes. And I flew over and and got the role and then moved to London. So um, I, I learned a lot in that moment. Very early on in my career, you never know who's watching. Always give it your all. I mean, yes. I kind of knew those things anyway, but it's really nice to be reminded in such a wonderful way. But isn't it interesting? Because even though only five people or whatever it was were in the audience, one of them is, is actually very key so you can't even tell from the size of the audience whether there's I mean obviously you want to give your best to to anyone who's coming to the show but yeah I, I get what you're saying it's fascinating so you do Marius. So what then leads you to Javert? Well, gosh, it, it was, actually it was John Robertson again, believe it or not. I'm one of two people in the world who have played Marius and Javert. Hadley Fraser is the other one. Oh. He was, um, funny enough, he was Marius, I think, two Mariuses before me. And then I went in and then he was Javert, two Javers before me. So he literally, <laughs> I should see what he's doing now so I can see my future. But yeah, I was doing 1776 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the USA. And I got a, a, a message from from the lamers people asking if I would put a video down for Javert and I put the video down, didn't hear anything back. And then all of a sudden I finished that contract, went back to New Zealand and was had just landed in New Zealand and was just exhaling. And I got a Facebook message from John Robertson saying, I just saw on Facebook you touched down in New Zealand. Funny enough, we still can't find a Javert. Can you get here by Friday? Oh. So I flew over on the Friday, auditioned for the, the creatives and they all said, can you come back in tomorrow for Cameron? And I came back in the next day for Cameron and he offered it to me in the room on the spot. Wow. So um, that's how Javert happened. It wasn't in my plan. That's how I found out about the uninspiring Marius and Ah. the reason why they weren't that interested in getting me in. And if they'd found someone they were happy with, I don't think they would have called me. It was because they were, I don't think they saw that uninspiring Marius being able to pull off a Javert. So why do you think you play the villain more inspiringly, if I can put it that way, than the uh, than the romantic lead. This is a very interesting discussion. I actually wrote an entire show about it called Bad Guy, which I just performed at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. I'm not going to do the whole show for you now, but um, I think it has a couple uh, a couple of reasons. One quote that always sticks out to me from NIDA, um, the glorious Keith Bain, who Strictly Ballroom was written about his life. He was our movement teacher. And he said, there's no such thing as overacting, only undercommitting. And I think I'm pretty committed on stage. I can go there maybe where I find it easier in some ways to go there than to, in terms of commitment, than maybe... Oh, no, I don't shy away from vulnerability, but I, I find it easier to give everything my all. I think um, I also... Um, Māori from New Zealand, so I um, come from descend from two tribes, Ngāti Tuwharitoa and Ngāti Kahanunu, and I think my inner Māori warrior is always a little bit below the surface, and that I can tap that into that as 
as a in a way. And the other thing I think is in the writing of of some of these roles, um, queer coding, which was you know from the 30s through to the 60s, was the Hayes Code in Hollywood. Through those years, the Hayes Code meant that anyone who basically anything that was unsavory to society had to meet um, a timely demise and have punishment in in a story. So the only way they could write certain roles that were queer they had to be the villain because they then had to meet a timely demise. Now, mm. I, it's not the same now, but from years and years and years and all those films created in that era, we have society now is kind of used to seeing that queer coding. So, you know, mm. you think of Lion King, of Scar, there's queer coding. Yes. And there, think of mm. um, Ursula, and you know, based on Divine. Um, I mean, Divine in general. Um, so I think I have queer coding um, to thank and also my, my inner warrior. Javert, though, is not a straightforward villain per se. Not at all. Uh, he may antagonist, and yes, he, he may be the person that we're kind of supposed to not like, but he's actually a very honourable man, isn't he? I think he's the hero of the story, and um, and I discuss this in my show. The thing is, Valjean stole a loaf of bread. And Valjean broke parole. Now, if you just take Valjean's storyline, sure, the audience are privy to adopting um, an orphan, helping Fontaine, but Javert's not privy to any of that. He's very... Um, you know, and we're sympathetic as to why he stole the bread in the first place. Oh, of course we yeah. are, but Javert yeah. just sees that, you know, okay, well, then do your time and don't break parole, you know? So yeah. to Javert, it's just like this person, as he would have seen a lot of people like this before, just mm. has this person with a brush, and he's proven time and time again from Javert's point of view that he... Mm isn't a good person. Javert's just a, a dude doing his job. He gets really carried away with it, particularly around the bridge at the end. But um, mm. but I never saw him as a villain. And I always love playing an antagonist, um, yeah. someone who has that commitment, but there always has to be a reason why. And even Trunch, another role that villain that I played, um, who arguably could be seen as, as a villain. She gets pleasure out of, you know, torturing children, putting them in chokey. I think that e- even with... A role like that, I can still understand why she ended up the way she did. She was she was obviously bullied as a child. She obviously physically different, was othered. And it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, because, you know, you tell me I am bad, therefore I become bad. And often the motivations aren't, uh, you know, people aren't being evil because they're necessarily evil. It's just that's no. the outcome of um, what they see as the, as the right choice. Well, what is even evil? What is even mm. good? What is bad? Is, is there an argument that good is just a preferred outcome and bad is just a less preferred outcome, depending on the perspective? Because mm. there's always two sides. Yeah. Now, having sung uh, in various uh, sing-along bars around the world one day more, um, not very well, but, you know, it's great fun. Are you going to um, do it now? I think we should leave that for another time, or at least until we're <laughs> off air, uh, much as I'd love to. But the funny thing is, you know, there's that great bit at the end of one day more where everyone's singing over the top of each other. I have to ask, you know, knowing the part of Marius, did you suddenly break into him? when you're uh, try, supposed to be singing Javert's bits. <laughs> oh, look, I was very glad to have the 11 years uh, in between the two roles. But yes, in the funny thing, there were lots of little things that in rehearsals, I had that impetus until Javert really kind of like settled in my skin. Every time I heard a, a cue or even a cue that I would have running from my dressing room to make that cue on stage, I would get that little that little jolt. It's um, it's pretty funny. But um, I, after by the time rehearsals were over, it was yes. Javert or bust. <laughs> <laughs> Javert is inside you. But while we were doing the rehearsals, because, you know, they always have mood boards for the story up on yeah. the wall. And we first started in Melbourne at the Opera Centre. You know, you look along and it shows you the set. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the final moments of the show was me as Marius, was the picture they'd chosen to show everyone what the set was going to be. And I was just, I mean, that was, I don't know, kind of cute, but also like, oh, gosh, look how much I've aged. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A bit more music now. And I believe our next uh, performer is someone that you've got in the show. Yes. I tell you what, I'm so thrilled with the amazing cast that we have managed to assemble for Jekyll and Hyde. It's extraordinary across the board, you know. Um, we have obviously the wonderful Georgina Hobson who was just playing Christine in Phantom of the Opera on the Harbour playing Emma. We have, you know, Rob McDougall who's coming in from from the Lamers tour that I did along with Sarah Moore as well. Mm. But we have this extraordinary, I guess you would call them an indie pop or rock star playing Jekyll. And it's it's... The audition just blew all of us away. Brendan McLean is his name. The voice is extraordinary. The songwriting is extraordinary. Plays multiple instruments, which is incredibly helpful in an actor muso version of the show, which we are doing. But the risk-taking and danger that I saw in the audition is exactly what this role needed. And um, I have, of course, become obsessed with all of my cast in 
you know, for different reasons, as a director should as we're about to go into rehearsals. And this song is um, one of Brendan's many hits, but this is an orchestral version. And it's just the, the swelling string arrangement of this is what really gets me. And obviously because I've cast him in the title role of Jekyll and Hyde, I've managed to have the opportunity in the callbacks to say, hey, you know, tell me about this song. And and he wrote this when he first went to LA on a writing trip. He'd just met RuPaul. He'd just come out of a, a breakup. It was kind of life was a little overwhelming. And I think it's kind of perfect for this post-pandemic moment when I think all of us have been overwhelmed by life in some way. It's um never enough. Skin covered in black, still holding the match What's pulling you back? Ember to the ash Need some oxygen Have you set a date? I'm feeling a weight Flames flicker the stake You're running away I'll keep my eyes closed tonight Set a light Sorry, would you break it off like you never met me? It's never enough. Is it ever enough? Invisible light, I'm turning to white. Smoke over the glow, it's all that I know. Crucifying, cold now. Performed by Brendan McLean. Brendan is Jekyll and Hyde in Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes Theatre. Get along to hayestheatre.com.au. That piece was the choice of my guest in conversation, who is the director of that show, Hayden T. Hayden, you mentioned Brendan took a risk in the audition. What does that mean? I think it's been brave and been fearless. So giving something unexpected. And I mean, Brendan took many risks in the audition and was it was like the scenes for this role are incredibly demanding mm. and I chose them specifically for the audition because you need to see someone who is willing to go there. One scene is a transformation where they swallow um, or consume a formula and then transform into hide. And I wanted to see that someone who could really commit to that because it takes a lot. Mm. And Brendan ripped his earring out, which I then noticed was a tiny bottle drank from the bottle which was his earring and then went into convulsions on the floor and then emerged as this kind of rock star and the thing that I wanted to be so different about this role and Brendan brings to it is his Jekyll is kind of um, a little twitchy and has is a little awkward and then when he becomes Hyde all of a sudden he assumes his power which I think is appealing sometimes mm. you know I mean I, I talk about the commitment of villains I, I sometimes find it easier to live in the characters on stage than I do to live in you know Hayden's a whirlwind of insecurities but the characters uh, are much more committed and I think in that I saw that in Brendan I saw I mean ripping an earring out I mean who does that that's mm. brave that's fearless and I was like this is going to be an and extraordinary that's, living the, that's well. living the moment but I also knew that that this is someone who is going to have a, a, going to be able to create an amazing and thorough rehearsal process where we're just going to be able to play in the room or oh, I think every actor that I've cast has that fearlessness but in that moment I saw it in Brendan mm. there is something about the show though that you know when he transforms into Hyde and goes into the the underworld, as it were, to the bar and so on. It's all very sexual. Suddenly he becomes a, a hypersexual person. It's like all, all the inhibitions 
Mm. Uh, thrown out. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think um, it's, it's heretics, really, isn't it? I think we uh, the whole show is about a facade, and you know, we all have two sides. We all have you know that inner saboteur that tells us um, that we're not good enough, or, or is a little bitch in our ear or whatever mm. and through society and what society expects we put a filter on ourselves and I think um, the formula that Dr Henry Jekyll invents kind of drops down that uh, that filter and lets the purest form come out and obviously it's it's in a form of evil but you're right the sexuality comes through because the moral compass is gone. Mm. You seem to pursue cabaret simultaneously with a, a theatre career and, and um, I mean you mentioned your cabaret show that you've just done in, in the Adelaide festival what's the appeal of cabaret for you now is it just gives you a different outlet oh it's changed over the years when Mm. I first started it was a way to I was trying to get a green card for America and I needed 250 articles so I hired a publicist and needed something to you know for the publicist Maria Farmer to kind of sell to everyone 250 articles like mentions in the media effectively yeah so you have there are 10 categories and you choose five of them and you have to get 10 points in each category so I like first was a solo album then there's awards then there's references I had 18 references from different people like Kevin McIntosh and whoever I'd worked with Um, then there was articles and I think I can't remember what the fifth one was now I'm blanking but yeah that's how it works it's very systematic and people think it's impossible it's like no it took me seven years and four months it took me a long time (laughs) but you know if you have commitment you'll get there yeah it's what you talked about ambition before ambition is I suppose the drive to make things happen yeah it's possible it is possible anything's possible I mean if I had I mean I say to people now I'm like just you wait I want Jekyll and Hyde to transfer to off-Broadway and everyone laughs at me and I'm like People laughed at me when I said I'd be a lead role on Broadway and that happened. You know, being a, a t- child from a small town in New Zealand, it seemed unattainable, but I just kept going. And but yeah, what's, I, been, what's so ridiculous about the idea of Jekyll and Hyde going off-Broadway? Well, I think when people think it's ridiculous, it's because it hasn't been done before. Mm. You know, from here, there hasn't been a show at the Hayes, for instance, that has transferred from a 110-seat theatre to off-Broadway. But just because it hasn't been done before, the only other Kiwi who had ever performed on Broadway before me was Lucy Lawless playing Rizzo in Greece. But I, you know, I do it because Lucy Lawless did it. Yeah. But I'm not, I've never been... I've never been worried about being the first. I've never been put off by the fact that that hasn't been happened before. There's always a way to make your dreams come true. Yes. But, um, yeah, so Cabaret in the beginning started as a bit of a means to an end, but now it's become oh, therapy in some ways. Also, in other ways, a way because I spend so much time inhabiting other people and I do experience a thing called character hangover at times. I don't turn into the characters. I'm not method, but the character traits that I share with the character that Hayden shares just become slightly heightened in real life. When I was playing Javier for five and a half years, I tend to be self-righteous. He definitely is. And I maybe got a little bit self-righteous in my own life. And Cabaret is a way of breaking that down, analysing that, unpacking that and finding Hayden again. Mm. You've also recorded three albums. In fact, you mentioned one of them in order to get that green card. Yes. I, I assume the album came first in terms of it wasn't like, I need a green card, I'll record an album. Oh, it might have been a little bit <laughs> like Ooh, that. Fascinating. Well, there you go. <laughs> but the benefit of that exercise is that there was an album. Yes, I uh, I've done two more since then without you know having Without got needing the green a green card, card so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> was that a natural extension of cabaret work or did that come out of the, uh, the musical theatre? Oh, a little bit of both. I mean, definitely the first two albums were strong cabaret albums and the last um, most recent album, Face to Face, is like I wanted to make it a musical theatre album, 62-piece Lush Orchestra in Budapest and and um, it sounds like, like, like a Broadway album. That's what I wanted. But yeah, I mean, they definitely have come out of cabaret. The reason why I love albums and also creating, because I'm a makeup artist, I create um, a lot of videos on YouTube that marry my performance and my makeup together and the reason I create those and I create albums is because what we do as performers is um well it's fleeting if you're not in the room at that moment it doesn't exist that's the thing I love about it as well because Mm. it's such a an immediate thing and we something that I share with that audience and if you're not in that room you weren't there for that moment and every moment is different in live theater but an album is something that that lives on it's something that people can take home it's something that you know that I I've also done a lot of my performance away from my family in New Zealand traveling around the world and they've missed a lot of that but an album was something I could send home to Nana that's nice you mentioned the videos and I have to tell listeners that uh, one that people should definitely look up is uh, called seven years uh, where you you basically age yourself yeah. In slow mo, well, like, it sort of happens in real time, but it, it's it's. Can you explain, describe what it is? Because it's it's worth describing. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So that actually, funny enough, that song was. Um, so, I'll go back a little bit. I 
wanted to try this orchestra in Budapest, and Trevor Ashley had tried it when he did Liza Minnelli version of uh, Do You Hear the People Sing? Well, we were doing Les Mis, and I listened to it and went, oh my God, they're amazing. He's like, yeah, you just log online, you book it in, you watch it on Zoom. On, um, it wasn't Zoom at the time. It was, um, what was the old version? It's Skype. <laughs> and um, you watch the, you put your, you know, send them the orchestrations, the arrangements. And and, it, and I was like, Nigel, my longtime collaborator and musical director, Nigel Ubryan, I was like, Nigel, I think we need to try this and do an album. And this was, we were getting ready to do Face to Face. And I was like, I think this is the way we can do something huge, like 62 pieces. And he's like, I'd like to try it first. I went, let's do one track. And I've been, had this idea for something I want to make a video for. So we made it seven years. He orchestrated it. We sent it over to Budapest. We Skyped in at two in the morning, Sydney and New Zealand time, because um, it was the middle of their day. They recorded it in 20 minutes. And then they sent it to us and I put the vocals down. Now, in this video, I wanted, because I did a lot of special effects makeup in my, in my time, I wanted to age myself from seven years, well, not seven years, because obviously I can't look seven. I wish I could. If I could, I would every day, um, to a 70-year-old while singing the song. And I didn't know until the day I filmed it if this would work. I was pitching it to the director, and I pitched it to the whole crew, and I was like, this is, I think it'll work. What we did is we took the recorded track, and we slowed it down to half speed, which is basically sounds like... It does not sound like English. So I had to have someone speaking the words as it was happening so I could mouth it because it's just like, it's like learning another language. And then I did the makeup. So I had the song, I think, is like four minutes long. So I had eight minutes to do the makeup, which is quick in itself. It's amazing. And I was going incredibly quick to do that. I used um, Plodian, which is actually something you make use to make scars on, you know, on set and film. But I knew that if you paint it on, that it'll basically, it tightens up over like 30 seconds and will create wrinkles so it also means though because this actually burns your skin that you're only supposed to use it once on your to make a scar but I I knew I had about four goes at it and then I would have scarring for a couple of days so I wouldn't be able to do it again but you know the things we do for art Um, so we did it one go and then sent it immediately to the studio well in this another room in the building they then sped up the video to double time and put it with the original track and we were like oh my gosh it works so we did four takes and the fourth one which was the final one was the one that we used so my skin was a little raw underneath but um but it worked i mean i think yeah. it worked yeah i'm it's very a, proud of it's it it's amazing that you can age yourself in what is effectively eight or nine minutes yeah. i mean when people are in like star trek or star wars don't they have to turn up at 2 a.m to have like eight hours of makeup <laughs> they do but i'm a theater i'm a theater no, i'm gonna say theater kid i'm not a kid anymore i'm a theater person you know yeah. i've been doing quick changes all my my entire yeah. life i mean Javert ages in 11 minutes. That's a luxurious 11 minutes. Um, but there are some, I mean, when I was, the last show I did at the Hayes actually was only heaven knows and I had to change genders in three minutes and 20 seconds. Wow. Um, I really enjoy the challenge of a quick change. Mm. And most of my makeup videos, even the one I did for stars, where I transformed from young Javert into old Javert in, in the space of stars. And in that, I did it in real time. There was no speeding up. I kind of get off on the challenge of a yeah. quick change. You don't find it difficult to change personalities in three minutes or age your personality in three minutes when, when you're doing that quick change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the age, That's the, a refreshing answer. The ageing in terms of like outside has takes that long, but the act of becoming someone else happens the moment you walk on stage. Mm. Yeah, You don't retain it when you walk off stage? No, no. I think that would be problematic for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> and problematic for you, my dresser yeah. and my wiggy. <laughs> You're not living the part too much. That's good. Another piece of music now. And, uh, well, this features another uh, member of your cast. Tell us about oh, it. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I had this vision for the show. And one of the things that... I didn't really know who I wanted to cast and what roles, of course, but I. one of the things that I saw happening at the end of World War II that I see happening again now post-pandemic is that during World War II when men went off to fight, um, women had to step up into different roles. Um, you know, uh, people who were othered, uh, coloured people had to step up to, to fill the gaps in the workforce. Trans people had to step up to fill the gaps in the workforce. And then as soon as... Um, World War II ended, all the men came back from war, and those people were then shunned in society, and some of them were put in asylums, such as trans people. And now, post-pandemic, we're doing the same thing again. We are bringing laws in America that are othering trans people, um, you know, not allowing them to go into bathrooms. And I I, I see that same thing happening, where basically, as a human race, we love to... um, Find a smaller, more marginalised community than we are in and stand on top of them in order to get our head out of the water. So I, 
in New Zealand went to see an amazing production of Little Shop of Horrors at the Court Theatre in Christchurch. Ototahi is the Māori te reo version for Christchurch. And playing Audrey II, the plant, was this extraordinary vocalist and actress, trans-vocalist actress called Brady Pieti. And I just thought she was amazing. And I said, hey, would you put a you know, an audition video down for, for Jekyll. And as soon as she did, the entire team just fell in love with her. She's a heartbreaking actress, um, has appeared in lots of films in New Zealand, was in Black Ties that toured Australia and New Zealand pre-pandemic. And I wrote to the musical director of Little Shop of Horrors before I spoke to her, because I knew him, I'd worked with him, Richard Marriott, and I said, you've just worked with Brady Piete. Can you tell me what the voice is like and do you think, you know... I'd, I'd love to hear more of her voice. And he sent me this next track. And I can't, to this day, and same with Lisa Campbell, our executive producer and casting director, neither of us can get through listening to this song without crying. There's something about Brady's voice and Brady's, how she accesses her emotion and her lived experience that just breaks my heart. And um, I've spoken to Brady, obviously, since casting her as Lucy in this show about this song and after this take she did uh, three takes I believe of this this was the third one and she'd just been through a breakup her her boyfriend had just left her and after this take she burst into tears which I think is the reason why we all burst into tears when we hear her sing it it's raining so hard it's really coming down sitting by my window watching the rain fall to the ground this is the time I love to be holding you tight But I guess I'll just go crazy tonight But I guess I'll just go crazy tonight It's raining so hard Brings back memories of the time when you were here with me, counting every drop about to blow my time. I wish this rain would hurry up and stop. Hardly catch my breath. The harder it rains, the worse that it gets. This is the time I love to be holding you tight, but I guess I'll just go crazy tonight. But I guess I'll. Just go crazy tonight. Brady Pieté, the wonderful voice we just heard, the pianist Malcolm James for Raining. And Brady is in Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes Theatre, directed by my guest in conversation today, Hayden T. Um, Hayden, you touched on earlier you are of Maori heritage, um, but that's actually a relatively recent discovery, isn't it? Well, I mean, my dad didn't discover that he was Māori. He was adopted by a Pākehā, a white family in New Zealand. And it wasn't until after I was born that he found his birth family. So we have known for majority of my life, but I really didn't embrace it. It's so funny how life works and the things that I tried to hide for majority of my life being my sexuality, gender expression, and Māori heritage, uh, because I was kind of in some ways, and I hate to say this now, I was ashamed of them because I was taught that they were all things to be ashamed of. And the moment as an adult that I embraced those things, and in this way, I've really embraced my Māori heritage moving back to New Zealand through the pandemic. Um, so in that way, it has been a real recent thing. I'm so proud of it, and I believe, as I said before, the, the inner... Maori warrior is actually the part of me that's allowed me to have the most success in my life. And I think there's a real lesson in that. You mentioned, um, you know, there might be things, your sexuality, your Maori heritage, that you were taught, or at least you thought you had to be ashamed of, or at least, at least hide. 
Does any of that relate to some of that sort of performance anxiety you, you touched on earlier? Do you think it's kind of all part of the same thing? Probably, yes. I think um, I, I think so, yeah. Mm. And, it's, and I'm still unpacking that, to be honest, mm. you know, with various therapies and treatments and you know whatever you you have but um I'm sure it is I'm that take it's very it takes a lot of courage to live authentically in yourself when mm. parts of yourself are things that are othered by um by society it does take a lot of courage and I think that's why I've I've gravitated to these those kind of villainous roles in some ways because you can just commit to it and give it your all and kind of blast through it's much harder to do that in real life Maybe you've just helped me with that little light bulb moment then. Maybe. Thanks, therapist. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll send you the bill. <laughs> but, I mean, you mentioned sort of yesterday you, you had to – well, you had a session um, with your therapist. I mean, is that something that is an ongoing struggle for you or does it just kind of manifest itself in moments here and there? I, I ha- a hypnotherapist was yesterday. I beg your pardon. The, no, that's okay. No, I, but I do have a therapist as well. I, yeah. I had never been to therapy – well, I hadn't been to therapy for about 20 years until the pandemic, and I think we all kind of had – probably a little too much time with ourselves and our own minds over the pandemic and I I called um, again the, my best friend Katie who who sent me the Hayes link um, she said you know you're not depressed you're just not doing any of the things you love which for me was you know like my creative expression mm. um, performing and um, so I did go to therapy and and talk through all of that and um, and realized how important that that releases through through what I do the performance anxiety for me is something that's come up only in recent years really post Chevere funny enough so um, like it all started maybe a week after I finished Chevere um, it, I was riddled with anxiety all through Matilda but that was also quite a fraught experience in some ways because um, I mean as I say she's a real quite a villain but um, that company was very um, very strict like uh, I don't know if you've seen the show Matilda have you so it's um, it's gosh it's my favorite musical the first time I ever saw it was on um, on Broadway it was the first preview and I just went <gasps> I love this I was sitting there with my then manager Les Solomon and I was like Les I have to play this role huh. um, and I, when I first got my London agent after I'd finished Javert uh, they were like so what do you want to do I was like Matilda Miss Trunchbull Matilda Miss Trunchbull but even doing the show, I was never allowed to, like, they have this moment where the kids swing out over the audience on swings, and it's so cool, and I was just like, oh my gosh, now I'm in the show, I'm going to get to try the swings, and they would never, ever let me fly <laughs> out on the swings. Isn't that sad? Not rated for an adult weight. I, I might suggest. be, how dare you? <laughs> You're probably right. You're, I wore a fat suit. Well, um, well funny go. enough, they made me, and this also may have played into the anxiety as well, they, um, you know, I, I wore a fat suit, but they put, you know, about six months in, the company manager or assistant company manager calls me over after warm and says, so Hayden, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm feeling fine, thanks. How are you feeling? Well, um, how are you feeling physically? I'm like, I'm feeling fine fine physically what's going on she's like if we were to send you to a personal trainer would you go and I was like if you're paying absolutely so I went to this trainer and I was like why am I here and he's like oh you put on weight over Christmas and I was like I'm wearing a fat suit in the show and they're like yeah they they want you to be smaller and slimmer so you know I then lost a fair amount of weight and they said you can stop now and I went no 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 you started this and I'm, you know, feeling better about myself, now, yeah. so I'm going to go to it. I think that does play into mental health as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, like, yeah, I, I, I can't quite answer why that that performance anxiety thing bubbles up. I think I... I, I wasn't I sure whether it's someone, someone says something that triggers it, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it could be just an offhand casual remark, you know, perhaps less, you know, less cruel than you weren't the most inspiring Marius. Exactly, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I do remember this... Um, just before the pandemic, I did a show at Darlinghurst Theatre, a cabaret show, and I won't name names, but the reviewer um, said uh, that I crucified songs when in character, but when uh, myself on stage, I was you know, surrounded by a, a whirlwind of insecurities that could barely got above average or something. And things like that do stick in your mind because I have a lot of anxiety around the fact that, you know, uh, okay, let's take Javert, for instance. People came and saw Javert and then they would maybe find me on a dating site and would write to me and say, can we have a date? And then would have a date and they'd afterwards I'd get a message saying, I'm really sorry, I was, I, I just thought that you were a different person because of what I saw on stage. And I'm like, hold on, you wanted to date Javert? And it, it, that can be really hard when someone basically says to you, I much prefer you being someone else to you being yourself. Mm. Um 
So, yeah, that's a bit bleak, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just getting back to Matilda. Please. We, we, we go, we'll be going out with that in a moment. But uh, Mrs Trunchbull, now, Emma Thompson's playing that in the film. Yes, isn't that a glorious? So, yes, but I confess I'm not overly familiar with the show. Is the role usually played by a man in drag? It is, yes. I mean, yeah, it is. Right. And that's, I think, due to just the physical... I have to speak very carefully here. I can only speak this, I presume, after having done the show. It's the hardest show I've ever done in my life, the hardest role I've ever done. I did experience a lot of injuries. You have to have physio every week because your body aches. I would literally, from the station, kind of um, stiffly walk home every night and fall into an Epsom salt bath. It's that full on. Because you do gymnastics. You have to jump on a trampoline and do a somersault in the air and then land on your feet. You have to swing a child around by her pigtails. You have to do all of the... You have to do a ribbon dance every night and throw it and catch it in the air. It's Because um, obviously she's an Olympic winning gymnast. So you have to be able to do all these things. That's why it's a three-month rehearsal period with like a boot camp every morning before rehearsals for that role. I'm thrilled that they're doing that they've got Emma Thompson doing it because basically the reason for having to do that on stage is obviously you may need that extra physical height and strength that are, that are, uh, and I'm talking in general terms here I don't want to offend anyone that a man may have over a woman in a stage version but on film you have the magic of film you don't have that excuse so I'm so glad that they've given it to a woman I would love them to open it up to all genders mm. on stage too that has to be the tallest person in the show, Trunch. They're very strict about that. Um, but if you find someone tall enough and strong enough and has the ability, I think that role should be open to all genders. The RSC are really going to come for me after this interview, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's just that I was, I was thinking it was as much to do with the, the aesthetic of, of what the, the, the role should look like. I mean, there is something about the aesthetic of a, a man in drag that's different from you know a transgender woman or a woman. Like, Definitely. There is a slightly different aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, look, it's such a transformative costume that, mm. like, you, your shoulders are padded, your breasts are padded, your butt is flat, your, you've got a paunch stomach. It's it's completely, I mean, it's a whole inbuilt body underneath that costume. You know, you're, you've got moles added to your face, you have a monobrow added. I mean, yes, there is, but they're very strict in the show about never playing it in drag. She She's right. always, you play it as an authentic woman. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, with the magic of transformative... Makeup and costume. I, I don't necessarily, it doesn't look like a drag role. Yeah, interesting. Is there a role that you're dying to get your teeth into that you haven't been offered yet? Oh, I guess you could say that Barry's going to the prom that we listened to earlier might Ooh. be a little bit of a, an affirmation. I believe in an affirmation strongly. So before I did Javert on Broadway, I really wanted that role. And um, I went to see it and I wrote a little note. I knew I was doing it in Australia, so I'd already been cast in Australia, but I wanted to do it on Broadway. I wanted it to be my Broadway debut. So I went to see the Broadway production to see this new version, and I wrote a little note. Dear Hayden, congratulations on your Broadway debut, March 19, 2016. Love, Hayden. And I folded it up, and I hid it in the lining of a Broadway seat. And then I beat my affirmation. I opened there in January 2016. So I actually beat my affirmation and made it come true. So I believe in putting these things out there. So I guess I've let something out of the bag by putting um, Barry's Going to Prom from the prom in my little playlist today. <laughs> I've also learnt that sometimes it doesn't work to tell people a dream role because you might jinx yourself. Like, I'll never play the Phantom. And for a while I was saying that was my dream role. And now I'll never audition for that role again. Yeah. I think I've been in for that thing about seven times. It's not for me. And I'm also too old. No. Could you see yourself directing a show that you're starring in? No, I think that uh, I have mm, talk very carefully. Hayden. I have been involved in <laughs> never productions. Never say never. I no, no, no. I will say never to that. I think I've been in productions where I've the director has also been in it, and I think it's a very hard line to to walk. I've also been on tours where the you know on productions where they put. Um, where I've even lived with the director, and that's also a, a, a line I don't think you can cross. You know, they put all actors into like an actor house. Or, yeah. you know, I don't think that's a very good idea because at the end of the day, knowing me and knowing how insecure I am and not having someone to edit me from the front and knowing what it looks like, I mean, I, I would just be an absolute nervous wreck. It wouldn't be good for anyone. No, I would love to do more directing. As I said, I've never felt more ready for anything in my life as I do for Jekyll, but um, I don't see me uh, starring in them. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic, Hayden, to talk to you. But before I let you go, you do have to introduce our last piece, which is a bit of Matilda. Why have you chosen yes. this one? I chose this because, um, gosh, I realise I've chosen a lot of these songs today because they make me cry. But, um, you know, it's very rare that you 
spend a long extended period of time in a show and the song can still move you and you know I did 15 months playing Miss Trunchbull but and I wasn't involved in this number in the song uh, in the show but to this day it's still um it still moves me and makes me feel something and it's because it's about the um the optimism and the hope of youth and just, uh, you know, dreaming. Of, and it's also a little bit misguided about, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to do all of these things. And when I grow up, things will be different. And you realize that actually, I don't know, we're, we're always going to have that. Well, I hope that inner child is going to be alive in all of us. And this song reminds me that my inner child is still alive and kicking inside. Hayden T, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Director, singer, actor, makeup artist, the remarkable Hayden T. He's directing Jekyll and Hyde at the Hayes Theatre, which is playing from the 29th of July. Get along to hayestheatre.com.au for your tickets. You can keep up with everything else Hayden T is doing by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Hayden T. And that's T spelt out T double E. Well, that's all for In Conversation for today. Find us in your preferred podcast app by searching 2MBS In Conversation and do please leave a rating and review. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. 